0: Good morning. The cross of Jesus Christ is the reason I'm alive. That is really true for me. I was singing that and it was pretty powerful emotionally to to remember. because i i believe i'm literally alive i'm physically alive because of the cross of jesus christ those many years ago when jesus got a hold of me and the power of the cross and the resurrection the power of jesus broke so much that had me bound in life but it chokes me up still because his power remains as even the song attests it never loses its power and I know it the power in things that once were evident in my life and now things that are not evident, things that continue to change, continue to be shaped and influenced uh, by the power of Jesus Christ. Well, let me uh, break the spell of that for (laughs) a moment and change our attention to a note that I want to read to you. Dear Grace family, Twenty-three years ago, my dear friend Sally Rogers, uh, this is from Kay and Dennis Whistler, my dear friend Sally Rogers invited me to women's retreat. We roomed with some wonderful women of God, Beth Grafton Cardwell, Rebecca Post, Susan Scott, Amanda Ingram. It was an incredible weekend and I, I knew by Saturday night that I wanted Grace to be my new church home. I asked them all to pray that God would clearly show us what to do. Dennis was a deacon in the church and we were, that we were attending, and I knew if we were to leave, the Lord would have to show him. The following two weeks were comical. Every single day, the Lord put someone from grace in our path. The clincher was when the Rogers invited us to a movie. We sat down, and all of us were capped on the shoulder McLean's and Shelton's were sitting right behind us. We attended service that Sunday and have been here ever since. Uh, We've been richly blessed by serving at Grace Community by those we served with. We have been a part of Awana Sunday School, ABF, serving communion, beach camp, VBS, Grace Cafe, choir, children's ministry. And I've had the privilege of directing numerous plays and musicals. We have so much talent in our body. How many churches have an orchestra? Our children grew up in our incredible children's ministry and youth ministries. We have so many loving, gifted, dedicated people who nurture the children and students that are put in their care. We urge anyone that isn't currently serving to get involved. And so it's bittersweet to be leaving. We met with Pastor John, and he and Pastor Tim prayed for us and gave us their blessing. In fact, we met, and then I got and grabbed Tim, and before they left after a really sweet meeting, I said, let us, uh, uh, let us put our hands on you and pray for you. For the last five and a half years, our son Nathan served, who was an intern with us here for uh, a, a stretch, Our son Nathan served as youth pastor at Fowler Presbyterian. Recently, he became youth pastor of student ministries at Rise Church in Visalia. This gives us the opportunity to worship as a family again, and we believe the Lord is leading us to Rise. We will begin attending Rise on September 16th. We love you and we'll carry you in our hearts and prayers. Thank you for many years of blessing. Dennis and Kay Whistler. Let's just take a moment and pray for them. I especially want to lift Nate in prayer in the ministry God has called him to at the Rise Church and in working with junior high and high school students there. Heavenly Father, sincerely we pray for Dennis, for Kay, for Nathan, It will be sweet to worship you together. We ask, Father, that you would continue to move, develop, and strengthen Nathan as he serves you and serves your people. We ask your every blessing on them. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we read the scripture, and it's uh, Revelation 3, verses 14 through 22, I wanted to share a little bit about Laodicea. This is the seventh of the seven churches that we have messages to in the opening of the book of Revelation. And in weeks past... I've tried to show you the uh, the actual route, mail route that these letters would would follow, and you can see Laodicea is at the bo- bottom. It uh, the, the the order of the churches in the route moves clockwise. Here's another look gives you a little bit more of a sense of the geographical topography. And this picture will not make any sense to you until I talk to you about it very quickly. This is from Hierapolis. By the way, in Paul's letter to the Colossians at Colossae, which is in this same valley. In fact, Colossae is only 10 miles from Laodicea and Hierapolis is only 6 miles from from, uh, Laodicea this these are the Travertine Springs just outside of Hierapolis and the water in these pools that are heavily silted and uh, is 95 degrees now I, I don't have pictures of the waters that flowed by Colossae but they were very cold and fresh waters, whereas the waters outside of Hierapolis were very, very hot. Hot versus cold. This is Laodicea as we would see it today. It was the largest city in the entire what was called the Lycus Valley. And in the distance, you see that yellow circle? Those are those very hot springs that we were just looking at uh, that were a little closer. Here's another picture. In the foreground is part of the ruins of Laodicea, but you can see it almost looks like a bright cloud or snow on a mountaintop, but those are the springs. And so what I want you to appreciate is as you hear here reference to hot versus cold versus lukewarm, Well, that kind of reflects three cities in the area. Hierapolis is hot. I I mean, its waters are very useful because hot waters are good for bathing, for health. In Colossae, cold, fresh, running water, also considered healthy, useful, thirst quenching after a hot journey or at the end of a hard work day. I want to show you one more thing. Laodicea didn't have its own water source. It didn't have a river, if you will, or hot springs running through it. And you can see the uh, relationship of the cities. Hierapolis, which would be at the top of the slide, and then to your right would be Colossae, and right in the center, Laodicea. Keep your eye right on Laodicea keep it. This is a different map, but I wanted you to see something. Do you see the aqueduct that I've labeled there? This is an ancient map that actually cites the aqueduct that Laodicea constructed to a, to a well or a spring so that they could bring in water through a stone piped and terracotta piped aqueduct. Let me just keep your eye on that. You see where the Denzili is? That's where the spring that fed the the waters to Laodicea. Let me go back again. See that? See where the aqueduct ends? Right where the modern city is today. This is part of that aqueduct. This was part of the piping that brought water from what is the modern city, or the area of Denzili, to Laodicea. Here's some of the terracotta piping that brought the waters in. This was kind of an archaic filter. Uh, the large open hole was an X-flow, and the other, which the, with the smaller holes, was to help kind of filter the water that was brought in. And here's kind of an overlay or a brief outline of of the verses, and I think it's printed for you in your bulletin. But unlike some of the other churches, Laodicea, there there is no praise for Laodicea, but there is hope. And that's what we'll look at this morning. Can you imagine the Laodiceans taking up their letter now. They have all the letters of the six churches that precede them in the delivery. Each church received all seven letters, but now Laodicea, the seventh in the route, receives its letter and I'm sure we can only surmise, but it seems so plausible to me that they would read all the other letters until they got to theirs. And we'll be reading that in just a moment. What is also interesting is if we were to add up all of the uh, descriptions of Jesus at the beginning of each letter, the things that characterize or kind of single out special characteristics or attributes of Jesus, how they would um, kind of pile up. And now we come to the attributes in verse 14. I am the Amen. I am the Amen, the very true one. We, what, we utter the word Amen at the close of our prayer to say Truly, not only does it represent assent or giving agreement, saying, I agree, but I endorse, I approve. Jesus is the amen of God. As Paul put it, when in his letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1.20, he said, God's promises are yes and Amen. In the Gospel of John, Jesus often said, Amen, Amen, which is translated verily, verily, or truly, truly, or I solemnly tell you. A second thing that is brought up about Jesus is he's the faithful and true witness. And the word true really contrasts um, genuine with counterfeit. And he is the beginning, the origin, and the archetype of creation. Paul, writing to the church of Colossae, said this Jesus is the image of the invisible God, firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him, for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so with that, let me uh, just add one last thing Jesus speaks to the Laodicean church as if, well, in verse 15 and 16, he speaks to them as if he were a visitor to Laodicea, a traveler stopping for rest and refreshment. In verses 17 and 18, he speaks to Laodicea as a trader in wares that he has brought to market And in verses 19 and 20 and 21, he speaks to Laodicea in the imagery as a stranger seeking lodging and local fellowship. Uh, Let me read the last letter to the seven churches, the letter to Laodicea. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve, by salve, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on the throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All seven letters had something that could be gained from the reading and beneficial to all of the seven churches. But the messages target specific needs And areas of work. I was reading this week, I read a quote. This is uh, from a pagan Stoic philosopher who lived at the time of Paul, lived at the time of the writing of the book of Revelation. He mentions this, he says, It's our nature. To love so much, noth- to love nothing so much as our self interest. It's our nature to love nothing as much as we love our self interest. This to us, our self interest, this to us is father, brother, kinsman, country, and God. What Epictetus went on to talk about was what the Scripture calls our sinful nature. I have found my cussed, sinful nature to be something very familiar to me. It's just a plain old selfishness. Me first. And when I put it in those terms, it doesn't seem quite so ominous, and yet it is ever so stubborn. And it's always, always at work in my life. And certainly some of it has been strengthened and I've been schooled in it. I mean, before I, before I came to Christ, uh, the friends that I played with, uh, the things that even mom and dad taught me or tried to curb, uh, the people that I hung out with in school. I have been... I didn't need to be schooled in selfishness, but all along the way, it's those people in my life and those teachings and the commercials on television, and the things that are constantly at work in influencing our lives, those school us in the nature of selfishness. Some opposing it in our own best interests, and some arousing it and giving approval to it, saying it's okay, even as the times and the culture changes. It was interesting to me that in this uh, talk that he was giving, actually Epictetus was a philosopher-teacher, and so he was lecturing... And one of his students, Arius, recorded all of his lectures or discourses. And in this discourse, to make his point, he went on to talk about puppies. And I don't know if, I, if you're on social media, but whenever the pictures of puppies come, that just really melts my heart. Especially the little Vimeo things, you know, the puppies are just adorable. Are they not? I mean is there no tatted biker that, that wouldn't be touched by a cute little puppy? And Epictetus brings up puppies. He says, uh, when we see two puppies playing together, we say, could anything be friendlier? But he says, throw a piece of raw meat between them. And see what comes out. And he goes on to talk about fathers and sons, how fathers care for their sons, love their their little baby sons, and rear them up. They worry over them when they're they're ill or have a fever, they seek to shape their life, but throw a piece of land between a father and his son. And he goes on to describe the kind of strife and opposition between a a young son grown up and a father vying over something of value that is of both their self-interests. He even talks about brothers, how brothers grow up loving one another, caring for each other. What a model, what an example of deep, Harmony and oneness of heart and mind. But he says, uh, take two sons that are heirs to the throne and throw a crown between them. Throw a kingdom in their midst. And see how they hate and find fault. It brings out, you see, the worst in our selfishness. Well, I bring this up because, um, and I've already... Confess to my selfish, please, I I know this is a great shock to you, it's just unbelievable that to imagine that John could be selfish, have selfish thoughts, selfish impulses. But you know, Paul says that we all have them. And if you've never read the passages in his letters where he contrasts the flesh and the spirit, he uses the expression flesh to describe our innate self-interest, our independence, that that kind of stubbornness, go-alone attitude. Oh, it manifests itself, you know, in a kaleidoscope of behavior. But that's the flesh, and that's a constant battle, and it's inflamed when the Holy Spirit enters the mix, because now the Holy Spirit is battling with your nature and my nature, your selfishness, your ego, my selfishness and my ego for control of your life. That's what Paul's talking about when he talks about walking after the flesh as opposed to walking after the Spirit. You have an option because of Jesus Christ, that cross, but more importantly his resurrection because when he was exalted, The promise of the Father was placed under His authority and He was given permission to pour out the very Spirit of God on His people, on the church. This is something that is lost on the church. We have this little piece of information up in our brains, this idea about the Holy Spirit. And recently, There have been authors writing books about the forgotten member of the Trinity because the Holy Spirit, we talk about the Son, we talk about the Father, but we don't live in the Spirit. We don't operate in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't let occupy us in a relevant way through faith live our lives in the power of God which is a power vested in us, present in us, occupying us, trying to operate in us through the Holy Spirit. And that's, that, that makes it a fight. It makes it a fight. And it makes discipleship something active and real. Following Christ is something we continue to do. The Christian life isn't... It may be settled at conversion, but it isn't at all finished. And to realize the joy and the power of the the Christian life is the life of the Spirit. And I do find that many Christians are not living in the power of the spirit not walking after the spirit galatians 5:16 not filled with the spirit ephesians chapter 5 verse 18 not setting their minds on the spirit romans chapter 8 verse 5 and in each of those passages i just mentioned paul goes on to talk about the battle with the flesh and the characteristics of the flesh verses the fruit and characteristics of the Holy Spirit. And if your life is characterized by those fleshly descriptions as my life was, and is threatened every time I live in my selfishness, then fix your eyes and feast on the fruit of the Spirit. And that is what I want and I know you want to characterize your lives. That brings up the painful talk. Maybe you just felt like I gave you the painful talk. No, when I think of the painful talk, I think of my wife, Shelley. You see, I'd rather fight than engage in a painful talk. A painful talk is spoken in low tones. It's subdued. There's a lot of quiet. It's kind of like I imagine it would be to, to play golf in Scotland because you have stretches of rough without any fairway. And that's kind of like a painful talk. And that's why when I was younger, in my early parts of my relationship with Shelley, I engaged in a lot of, well, I was an angry guy anyway. Even after I became a Christian, you'd think that would just somehow go away, and I prayed for that. But you see, there's that battle of the flesh and the spirit, and my anger and all of its manifestations was cherry to the fact that I was living in the flesh. In other words, I was succumbing to my selfishness and not trusting Jesus Christ in the areas that were most important to my life. And I got to tell you, when it came to me and Shelley and our marriage, that is where self-interest really rears its ugly head. But when Shelley would talk to me quietly, when something would spring up, boy, I could just, you know, in anger, men love anger, whether they show it or not, I was the showing it kind, because it feels good, it feels powerful. Anger, anger, really, I feel like I'm in control. I don't feel threatened when I'm angry. But if I'm truthful, see, if I don't, if, what I normally do is I mask the truth with anger. But if I'm truthful in the painful talk, then I feel very vulnerable. It's very scary. There's strains of shame. I have to face up to myself. I have to admit things that I've said or done or that have been kind of a characteristic of my life that I need to change. And that's, that's why it's called the painful talk. See, I like to hear about my strengths. About the good that I do. The good me. Tell me about that. But the painful talk doesn't have room for that. The painful talk is laser surgery. The painful talk is all about the cancer. And that's what this is. It's the painful talk. I should know how devoted Shelley is to me. Somebody mentioned today that 1968 was 50 years ago. Wow, I wish I was alive in 1968. But as many years as Shelley and I have been married, you would think I would never be threatened by her, never think of her as my enemy. No one loves me more on earth than Shelley. No one is more committed to me. No, no one has ever put up with me like Shelley. And yet, when she introduces the painful talk, she's my enemy. I don't trust her a bit. I doubt everything she says, unless the Lord is truly Lord and enthroned in my life. And that's why I'm not the angry man that she married. And that's why I am now a much better friend. And our painful talks are not as frequent and far more friendly. And I'm, I see her as a guest who loves me and wants the best for me. And not only me, but both of us. that's the message to Laodicea in a nutshell Jesus comes as a visitor he tastes the water he spits it out it's not hot like the the water in Hierapolis it's not refreshing like the water in Colossae as it has traveled the 10 miles through the aqueduct and been filtered through the terracotta pipes and perhaps embittered a bit because of the alkaline in the water. It's not hot. It's not good for bathing. It's not good for the hot drinks that we enjoy. It's not healthy for that soak you need when you have tired or sore muscles. It's not cold and refreshing like it would be to the weary traveler. No, it's just tepid and maybe a bit bitter, and he says he didn't actually say spit it out by the word. Let me teach you this. This is just for free. The Greek. This is one one of my favorite Greek words. Uh, are you familiar with onomatopoeia? Onomatopoeia is when the word sounds like what it is. So this is the Greek word, and I'm You'll never forget it. This is the Greek word for spit. And Jesus, we're told, used he, tuo, tuo. That's the word for spit in Greek. Yeah, it sounds just like it, what it means. But this is the word emeth. And emeth, I don't know if it's quite onomatopoetic. You know, when you... When you try to put a little gusto into talking about vomiting or puking, you can make any word almost sound onomatopoetic, but it's the word emeth, emeth, Jesus emeth, the Laodiceans. Very strong. What he's saying is, you're lukewarm. You've acclimated. Laodicea was the biggest, I mean, the most important city in the area. Banking. Do you know that at one time, their wealth and their banking business was so great that um, when Jerusalem, their monies would would flow from the Jews in the province of Asia, which is the eastern part of modern Turkey today. But it was settled all by, by Greeks among the Lydians that were native there, and then more people came in. I mean, it's, it's rather European at the time of the writing of Revelation, and uh, Jews had migrated there, and they sent Cicero mentions this in his letter, uh, his uh, defense of Flaccus, *Pro Flacco*. He mentions that a hundred ton of gold went from the, for the from the the Jewish people in Asia to Jerusalem, but it was intercepted. It was intercepted. And 20 ton, over 20 ton, came through the bank of Laodicea alone. Over 20 ton of gold. That's wealth. In AD 60, that was when Nero was the emperor. Paul was writing his letters, probably in prison in Rome. During that time, there was a great earthquake in Laodicea, and in that area of Asia, we've seen it with the other churches, there was a lot of volcanic activity, and so the emperor in Rome would often give aid to the people. I mean, just like when we hear of an earthquake in Italy or in some other part of the world, uh, other nations gather wealth and aid and go to their help. But it's recorded in the annals of Tacitus that Laodicea refused any help from the emperor or the senate of Rome. They did it on their own. And buildings that still survive are etched, if you will, with stella and different inscriptions using the phrase uh, of our own resources or on our own. You see, Laodicea is fiercely independent, stubbornly so, just like we can be. They don't need any help. I mean, it even makes it into the annals of history. They're rich. They're prosperous. They have a special wool. They were very involved in linen and different kinds of trade. They had sheep that grew and, and pastured in the area that had a black, glossy coat. And so their, their wool products and linens, if you will, were a very special, had a very dark kind of black sheen that was very prized. They had great wealth and gold. They had great clothes They even had a medical school. And they were known for this Phrygian stone that was, the area was also at at times associated with Phrygia, and there were locations named like a Phrygian mountain, and there was a stone, kind of a a mineral product that they they ground into a powder and composed an eye salve that was famous. Galen, the famous physician of the second century, actually writes about it in his annals. And yet Jesus says they're blind. You're rich, but you should buy pure gold from me, he says. You're you're poor. You need what I have to give you, which is a pure gold. He says you're naked and yet they're known for their clothes. He says, buy from me white garments. He says, you're blind. He says, buy from me a salve that will anoint your eyes and open your life to what I can do for you. He comes to them as a visitor. He comes to them as a merchant selling them something that they don't have, that they really need in their independence and self-sufficiency, prideful as they were. And then he says, like a guest, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to her. I will come in to him and we will share a meal I with you you with me these are all powerful images of the time and Jesus is saying let me in let me in you take pride in your aqueduct and that even though you don't have a natural spring you could bring your own water and you take pride in your wealth, you take pride in your textiles, you take pride in your medicines, but you're not healthy, you're naked, and you're blind. But I've got what you need and I'm here offering it to you. Buy from me And then, as a guest, powerfully in verse 19, he says, All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. That's so hard for us when we're clinging to our self-interest. So hard for me. Even with Shelley. sometimes the people we trust most are the ones that we push away because they get too close to our self-interest. And that's true with Jesus too. We don't want to be Laodiceans. We don't want to be people of the flesh. In fact, it was the same John who in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, Jesus speaking says, everyone who comes in except through the door is a thief. He who comes in through the door is the Good Shepherd. The good shepherd know his sheep, and his sheep know his voice. He brings them outside the fold, and they gather and they follow him. He goes ahead of them, and he leads them. And we're to complete that from the 23rd Psalm to green pastures and living waters. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Thursday, uh, I got the strangest call in the afternoon. A lady called me. Of course, I didn't know it was a lady when it rang. In fact, I didn't recognize the number, and I almost didn't answer it. But I answered it because it was on my cell phone. I said, hi, this is... uh, In fact, I I didn't even give her my name, and if you know me, I always say, Hi, this is John, even if it's my wife calling. But anyway, so I said, Hello? And she said, Hello, who is this? And I'm thinking, You called me. Shouldn't you know? Well, she says, I had this number on my phone, and I didn't know who it was, and so I thought I would call, and she said, who are you? I said well my name is John and she said what do you do? I said I pastor a church and she said what's your last name and I said and she got all my vitals and so then finally I said what could you tell me a little about yourself and I have to tell you I imagine listening to her voice and the way she talked to me I, I have to imagine that Johnny Mae Eldridge was sitting in on the porch of a shack in a rocking chair in the south, on a sharecropper's ranch. And as she talked to me, she was just a constant flow of the most beautiful language talking about Jesus and what Jesus had done in her life. And about halfway through, we spent about 15 minutes on this, and I was just smiling the whole time. By the way, if you smile when you talk on the phone, people will think that you are nice. And she thought I had a lovely voice, and she said, You must be a loving person. And I, thought, I was thinking, I wish I had been taking notes or recording this phone conversation. Finally, at the, what happened to be the end, I picked up a pen, and I wrote one thing down that she, she said. I went to get that one thing because I didn't know I was going to tell you about it. And I looked all over, searched through my trash can. I couldn't believe that I had, you know, I I mean, I I spent 30 minutes looking for it. Finally, I realized I had tucked it on a piece of scratch paper into a book and put it on the shelf. And this is what Johnny Mae Eldridge told me that I wrote down. It was something her dad told her. And her dad told her many, many times and it was really the, the punchline of her conversation. She said, my dad told me, Johnny May, let Jesus be your friend. Let Jesus be your friend. That's it in a nutshell. That's the thrust. Of this painful talk. That's the answer to your cussedness and selfishness and sinfulness. That's the solution for every moment of every day. Your problems that you've brought with you today, the things that are weighing on your heart, the difficulties that you can't get the best of or those that are getting the best of you, whatever it is, whatever your sadness, your anger, let Jesus be your friend. Let him in. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone who hears my voice. And he's not talking to unbelievers. He's talking to his church. He's talking to you and me. I will come in to you. I will come into you and we'll enjoy a meal together, you and me. Will you stand with me and let me pray for us. I want to remind you after I say amen, I'm going to be up here along with pastoral staff and leaders, their spouses. If you want to pray with any of us about what's on your heart, maybe a difficulty, a hardship, maybe your cussedness, <laughs> Maybe you don't know Jesus Christ as the great amen. Amen. If so, we invite you to come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the tough talks that make us more like you. Let us know through great gratitude and experience how meaningful is your correction and counsel and pointed love in our lives, that we might know your power, your spirit. In Jesus' name, we praise and thank you. And all of God's people said, God bless you.